How about a poem for this season of Advent, the second Sunday? It's from Eugene Peterson. It's titled The Cradle. For those of us who have known approximate fathers and mothers, man, K, this child is a surprise. A sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen, hoarded hopes, fed by prophecies, old sermons and song fragments, now cry, coo and gurgle in the cradle, a babbling proto-language, which when it grows a tongue, and we of course grow open ears, will say the big nouns, joy, glory, peace, and live the best verbs, love. Forgive, save, along with the swaddling clothes, the words are washed of every soiling sentiment, scrubbed clean of all failed promises, then hung in the world's backyard, dazzling white, billowing gospel. I love that. I love that line. This child is a surprise. A sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen. That's Advent's promise, a surprise. A sudden coming true. Advent's not this sort of slow winter's lead up to Christmas celebrating. Rather, it's an open heart invitation to imagine the one who came once will come again. The surprise, the sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen. How beautiful the world could be. Advent says, look up. Look around. Take notice. Because mostly we lived, we live heads down kind of lives. We live heads buried sort of lives, heads down in work trying to make a life that counts, heads down because of some past pain we can't imagine could be opened to a future in which everything could change, heads down because if if we looked up, we might have to face unmet expectations, we might have to deal with unfulfilled hope. So we we just keep our heads down. But what if there's a surprise? What if, what if the sum, sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen might happen? I want you to listen with me to a long list of names of people who pretty much lived with their heads down. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salman. Salman was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father 
of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel. And Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, if you wanted to find it in a Bible near you or the smartphone with you. We're going to spend the entirety of our Advent season in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, mostly because we're trying to lower the bar on Advent so incredibly low. Every Advent from this one will be so glorious, partly because, you, I mean, you got to honor the guy's work. Think about how much energy Matthew had to put into compiling that family tree, and don't you just kind of want to honor the names of those who are in the line? It validates us when we hear our names, but mostly we're going to spend our season of Advent and the genealogy of Jesus because I'm hoping that you'll find all of these names and all of these people get picked up, and your life too gets picked up and placed in the messianic branches that can hold your weight. The weight of your sin and your shame and your hopes and your hurts and your heart for something more, something, how beautiful the world could be. I love the way it starts. It starts like this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus. An account, not the account. Uh, Luke's got one too. You can find that one. They're different. I'll let you deal with that inconsistency. Matthew says an account, I think, as a way of saying hey, I'm working an angle here. I want you to pay attention. An account of the genealogy of Jesus. And then you notice there are three sets of 14 names equaling 42 generations. Just to put that into perspective, from our day back to the Revolutionary War, you might have eight generations. There's 42 generations of lives lived and hopes Hoped and hearts hurt 42 generations that finally give way to the surprise. The sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen, an account of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, 
who took on the the vulnerability of the womb and the infantile dangers of first century life with its political landscape making our political landscape look like Mayberry. Jesus, the Word made flesh, the incarnation of God, Jesus, whose life gives our lives meaning and whose death announces thou, death, thou shalt die, an account of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, who, who's, whose name charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. Jesus, who, who picks up the, the, the banal experiences of our lives and the, and the fractured realities of our days and gives them back to the world as something so much more beautiful on account of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is the surprise. Jesus is the sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen. And the one who came once, the surprise, will come again to make it all new and to make it all right. Don't you kind of want to know something about his family? An account of the genealogy of Jesus. Let's just pick on a few of the folks in Jesus' family. I mean, you, 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 who do you want to pick on? There's 42 names. You've probably heard of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those are the those are the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. And maybe, well, I know you know of Solomon because I preached on Solomon a couple of months ago and you've been thinking about that ever since. And you've probably heard of Ruth. Great story. She's got a whole book of her own. Maybe Uzziah. I think we'll get to him next week. Isn't that a bunch of names you probably don't recognize? you got to pay attention to David. I mean, Matthew's forcing us to pay attention to David. The whole thing starts an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And then this interesting description of David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There are four other women named in this male-dominated genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and of course Mary, Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah, goes unnamed, not to dismiss who she is, but rather to draw our attention to what David did. David, spying on Bathsheba as she showered, overwhelmed by her beauty, took him to took her to himself while her husband was out of town. She became pregnant. He tried to cover it up. When that didn't work, he killed her husband, Uriah. So let me get this straight. David, the, the adulterous, murderous David is in the line of Jesus' family. What kind of a family is this? All right, let's keep going. How about Rahab? You know Rahab? You can read about her story in the book of Joshua. Rahab welcomed two Israelite spies who would be a key factor in an Israelite war victory, when confronted by housing spies, she flat out lied. And they chose, the spies chose Rahab because she was a prostitute. No one's going to think twice about men coming in and out of Rahab's place. So let me get this straight. The lying, prostituting Rahab is in the line of Jesus' family. What kind of a family is this? How about Ahaz? Do you know Ahaz? Ahaz was straight up bad news. He had everything going for him. His dad, Jotham, was a good guy, a good king. But Ahaz was the black sheep. He, he broke away. He went rogue on the family's heart. He was so bad. Not only did he worship idols and desecrate the temple, he actually sacrificed his own children. Can you imagine? And Ahaz is in the line of Jesus. What kind of a family is this? And you probably know where I'm going. You probably see what I'm doing. 
All of these people with their broken lives and their mixed up, messed up heart become the thing that is the surprise. The sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen. My point is, there is nothing outside the reach of God's redeeming purposes. God intends to rewrite the scripts of our lives and offer them back as something so much more beautiful, how beautiful the world could be. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what the psalmist means. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. This is what Christians mean when they announce anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, everything's become new. Nothing is outside the reach of God's grace. How does that go again, Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. Nothing is outside the, God, the reach of God's redeeming purposes. I've been doing this for about 20 years now, so I've, you know, surprise, surprise, I've preached on this genealogy before. About 15 years ago, I was preaching in a different church in a different place, and there were two sisters sitting in like the third row off to my right, and I'm preaching the genealogy, and I'm probably telling, uh, making a sermon point about God's irresistible grace, and I see these two sisters absolutely weeping, and I'm thinking to myself, what is so sad about the name Salman? I'd find out later, one of the sisters had been divorced and carried a deep, deep shame and a self-loathing. Their dad was addicted to pornography before the internet, which makes it really hard to do, and their mom, trying to catch the wandering eye of her husband, was extremely flirtatious, always trying to make herself beautiful, which really came across as awkward and quite uncomfortable. And these two sisters figured their lives were doomed for worthless. There's nothing good about who they are and where they came from and what could be in their lives. And they hear hear the story, this David and Rahab and Ahaz kind of story giving, giving way to the surprise. And they realize maybe their lives aren't outside the reach of God's grace. Maybe their heart isn't outside the healing purposes of Christ's love. And maybe it's true for you too. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Let's keep picking. Uh, How about Jeconiah? Uh, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah, you know how he was a king. You know how long he reigned as king? Three months and ten days. Way to go, Jeconiah. Thank you for your service. Before Nebuchadnezzar came in, made Jeconiah kiss his ring and took Israel out of the Israelites out of Israel all the way to Babylon. What's that place in the Lord of the Rings? Mordor? Think, think Mordor, Babylon. Three months and ten days. Way to go, Jeconiah. Let's see. How about Achim? Achim, so There is no other place in the entirety of the Bible or anything outside of the Bible that mentions Achim. (laughs) He only shows up here in this genealogy. Way to make your life count, Achim. Jeesh. All right, how about, let's see, how about 
Nashan, Nashan, what a great name. Nashan lived during the time of Moses, when Moses was delivering God's people from slavery in Egypt. The Jewish Midrash, which is like a family lore, kind of might be true, it might not be true, but no one can really know. Nashan, it said, when, when Moses was delivering God's people from slavery in Egypt and they got their backs up against the wall at the Red Sea, Nashan was the first one to walk into the sea before the waters parted. And it said that he got so deep into the water that it covered his head before finally the waters parted and the Israelites crossed on dry ground. A courageous man, Nashan. Let's see, who else? How about Mathan? Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the father, and Joseph the husband of Mary. Mathan was the great grandpa of Jesus Christ himself. I love to imagine, did, did Jesus ever sit on Mathan's lap at some family Passover gathering? Did, did, did Grandpa Mathan ever twist Jesus' arm, you know, like your grandpa used to do and call it a snake bite? Did he ever, did he ever take his his, his nose and rip it off like a thumb. You know how grandpas do that. There is absolutely, I, I searched the source of all things accurate, the internet, for anything about Mathan. Nothing. Not a thing. As those in the medical profession would say, his life was utterly unremarkable. No one made any remarks about Mathan. What I'm doing here, what I'm getting at, is this whole genealogy is made up of a bunch of people who kind of pretty much did just head down sort of living, just like us. Some of them were courageous, like Nishan, and some of them were kind of a little bit pitiful, and most of them were just kind of doing their thing, just going about their days, mostly unremarkable. And yet their unremarkable lives are picked up and offered back for the surprise, the sudden coming true. And isn't it still true? God in Jesus Christ giving meaning to the mundane of our lives, giving hope to the hurt of our lives. So get after it. Do what you do. You don't have to make a life as if somehow more letters next to your name means you're more. You don't, you don't have to make more as if more in your account means you're more. Just do what you do. Do what God has gifted you to do in unremarkable ways, sometimes courageous ways, sometimes maybe not so great ways. Just do what you do and let God do what God does. Offer it back for redemption. I've been thinking about my life. It's kind of what people do, I think. Uh, probably because I was on sabbatical this summer. I've been thinking about my life. I like my life. I, I, I'm grateful. For my life, I love my job, I love the people I get to do it with, I love where we get to do it, I love my family, it's good. But I've been thinking about my life. I wake up way before the sun rises, which is extremely easy to do this time of the year. One of my daughters usually wakes up at about the same time. She loves to get to school early so she can sit in the cafeteria and hang out with her friends before the bell rings. I reenact the Civil War with my two older daughters, trying to get them out of bed every morning. I bring Mariah to school. We say our prayers. I drop her off. Sometimes I go right to church. Other times I go back home to make sure those two are actually awake. I eventually get to church, shoot some emails, make some phone calls, have some meetings, think about sermons like this one. Get home, usually slam down a meal before volleyball or soccer or driver's ed or whatever gathering we have that night. Then I get back home in hopes that there's some great sporting event on TV. This is the best time of year for people like me. And then I go to bed. And then I wake up and I do it all over again. And then I go to bed and I wake up and I 
do it all over again, and so do you. You, you, you. It's this endless run of days, and have you ever wondered, what are we doing? What are we doing? And it could lead, if you think about it, in one way, it's sort of like kind of despairing. But if you think about it in a genealogy sort of way, it's really quite exciting. Your life, the things you do, the, 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 the arguing and the loving and the hoping and the husbanding and the parenting and the wifing and the laughing and the serving and the giving and the working, all of it becomes the grist for the mill of God's redemptive purposes in the world. So do what you do. Keep getting after what you get after and let God redeem. Let God save. Let God offer it back as something so beautiful. How beautiful the world could be. A week or so ago, it was two days before Thanksgiving, I got a phone call from Dan Vredeveld over at Dykstra Funeral Home. He was calling to let me know that Art Justine had a stroke earlier in the fall and had died just a few days earlier. Art lived down in Missouri. He moved there in 2009. But before that, lived here in West Michigan and was a faithful part of the pillar community. Uh, I was, I've never, I didn't, I never knew Art. I hadn't met Art. He left in 2009. I didn't get here until 2012. So I was thinking to myself, what do you, what do you say? He, he, Dan was calling to see if I'd officiate at the memorial service. And I was thinking, what do, what do you say at the memorial service of a guy you've never met and to a bunch of people you won't know? So I just kind of let my heart and mind roam and wonder. And I walked over it was Thanksgiving Eve. The service was at 2 in the afternoon. I walked over about 1.15. It was a beautiful day. So Dan and I stood outside for a while talking about Art. Uh, Art's sister, uh, Janice Justine, and her daughter, Lisa, Art's niece, were there. So I, I eventually went inside, and I talked to Janice a little bit about her brother. Now, she told me that when, when he was born, he died at 78. He was born in 1944. Uh, when he was born, they placed him in the hospital nursery, and no one noticed he had a high fever. A fever, a high fever that went on for way too long before a doctor noticed, took him out of the nursery, reduced the fever, but the damage had already been done. There wasn't a diagnosis for it then, but we would now recognize Art was on the autism spectrum. Uh, Janice, uh, Janice was sure it was uh, Asperger's. I wonder what that was like. For art. He got a job at Holland Hospital uh, cleaning pots and pans. That's what he did. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm not sure the politics at the time, but the hospital was going to let art go. The pillar elders got word that the hospital was going to let art go, so they met with the hospital board and pleaded with them not to let him go, and the hospital conceded, and art, art kept his job. By the time art retired, after some 40 years, he had the longest consecutive days worked streak in the history of Holland Hospital. More than 100,000 hours of consecutive hours worked of cleaning pots and cleaning pans, doing the stuff nobody else wanted to do so that doctors and nurses could do what everybody needs them to do. And when he retired, they had a little ceremony for him and they officially named him what everyone had been calling him, the legend. Art the legend. And upon retirement, he bought a muscle car and he drove to Missouri and he lived with his sister. The legend. 100,000 hours of cleaning pots and cleaning pans. 
what if it's true? What if that's actually how it goes? What if that's really real? What if, what if a bunch of us just gave ourselves to the thing God has called us to, and we just, gave, we just let God do what God does, and we just did what, what God wants us to do right in front of us, the daily, mundane, monotonous, relatively unremarkable, sometimes courageous, sometimes not that great, but what we're supposed to do kind of lives, and let God write the redemption script all over the world. How beautiful the world could be. I'll give Leslie Newbegin the last word. For a Christian, the horizon for all action is advent rather than future. He is coming to meet us. And whatever we do, whether it's our most private prayers or our most public political action, is simply offered to him for whatever, it, whatever place it may have in his blessed kingdom. Whatever we do is simply offered to him for whatever place it may have in his blessed kingdom. How beautiful the world could be. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A surprise. A sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen here, now, Advent, at the table. The body of Christ given for you, the cup of Christ poured out for you. If you believe Jesus is Lord and acknowledge him as Savior, you are welcome at this table wherever you are. Maybe you have bread and wine, crackers and juice. If, you, if you're not a Christian, if you're here wondering about faith or church, maybe the table isn't the place for you to come. I'd love to hear your story. Maybe we could ask some questions together. Uh, you can find me at john, J-O-N, at pillarchurch.com. For those who do partake, come, for all things are ready.